0: Thank you so much for um, for doing this. Um, can I ask you first? Because I've always been curious, uh, what the IFI building
1: was before it was the IFI? Yeah. Um, so we acquired this building in the late nineteen eighties, um, and at that stage, the whole Temple Bar area was pretty run-down. As you probably know, CIE owned a lot of property here with a view to building an underground bus station. And So my uh, colleagues at the time, David Kavanagh and Ted Sheehy, who had been working with David, um, they found this building. David was then director of the Institute. Uh, They found this building and had the the vision to, to see that to establish a cultural centre within this kind of wasteland might be an interesting thing, and then, of course, others followed suit and other cultural organisations. But the building, when they came across it, was still being used by the Quakers. Um, The Friends main meeting house was here in Dublin. and It had been a very busy Friends uh, place of worship um, and place of activity and gatherings of one kind and another. Um, The main cinema was their main meeting room where they would have weekly, if not more often, uh, gatherings of friends and Quakers. Um, The the small cinema, too, was a lecture theatre, I think. It was a screening room. Um, When we acquired the building, there was a a magic lantern stand um, positioned at the back of the cinema. So it was a place that Quakers showed slides to each other of of the activities that they had conducted. So it was... um, As I say, at the time, still being used by the Quakers, but the fact is that many Quakers had moved out from the city centre and there was other points at which they had their their meeting rooms, so they were happy to sell on the building or to to, to pass the building on to uh, new owners. So the IFI, did that exist before? um... Absolutely, yeah. So the IFI um, is one name that the organisation has had over the past um, 75 years. And the the organisation was established in 1943 and um, formally uh, incorporated in 1945. And it had been set up by John Charles McQuaid, who was Archbishop of Dublin, okay. and others, and in response to the need that many Catholics felt for an organisation that would help them negotiate this new cultural form that was cinema. So the. Um, Internationally, there had been a, a Catholic response to cinema since cinema was invented in the t- in, at, at the turn of the last century, and in 1936, um, there was a papal encyclical um, that, that called Vigilante Cura that advised Catholics around the world to be wary of this new medium, and they, the, the encyclical encouraged Catholic groups to set up um, organisations that would filter cinema, and that would advise uh, Catholic audiences about what films would be suitable for family viewing, for Catholic viewing, that would not be um, corruptive of their their morals. So that was h- how the National Film Institute originally defined itself um, in response to this uh, encyclical. So within that, um, and say John
0: McQuaid's involvement, was it less about kind of opening up cinema as as opposed to kind of filtering and, and censoring and limiting maybe the scope of what people see. Yeah, so it, it
1: was, I guess it was from the start um, I suppose the, the notion of being advisory um, and issuing publications on cinema would have been part of the agenda from the very start but what very quickly happened was the use of film as educational tool um, began to be foregrounded, foregrounded in our activities. So, quite soon after we were established in the 40s, um, projectors were bought and vans were bought that the projectors w- would tour the country with a film library. The films were educational films. So, you know, of course, this is pre-television, pre-video days. So. The, the, the value of film as an educational tool within classrooms, within town halls and GA clubs and so on was seen. And so, up until the kind of mid to late 40s, this is what the Institute began to do to distribute films for educational purposes. So, arguably, they were progressive in that and yeah, using film yeah, for is. educational purposes. But you're, you're right, the notion of them kind of promoting film as art wasn't ever part or high on an agenda. So, if you looked at how similar national organisations might have evolved in other countries, and say the BFI in the UK or National Film Board in Canada or whatever, their role would have been kind of inclusive, embracing, kind of welcoming and celebrating the art of cinema. That wasn't at that time part of what the National Film Institute, as we were then called, was.
0: And when did that shift then in terms of...?
1: Well, the shift, I, I guess, so... Originally, we're distributing films. Then there's a period when we're quite actively involved in producing films, and that was an, an interesting time. Producing films again for educational purposes, often on behalf of government departments. So in the 40s, 50s, there's a very interesting strand of films that would have been produced for the Department of Health or Department of Local Government, and films often that were dramatised so that you have these um, message films um, made, but that they incorporate actors and um, quite talented directors who are directing little story films to communicate messages about health and safety and so on. So these came through the National Film Institute in the absence of an alternative, you know, national film studio or, or film board at that time. So Distribution, production, we began to produce, um, to record and produce the GAA football and hurling finals. No way, right? Yeah, so okay. 40s, 50s, 60s, that would have been a, a busy part of what okay. we were at and, and of course, very kind of popularised the, the National Film Institute because there would have been such a huge response to those films for, you know, September, October of, of every year. Um, and well, you don't know what the first year, you, you what
0: the first year that you recorded the hurling
1: ones? Yeah, the the nineteen forty eight I think is the first one. Yeah, nineteen forty seven there was um, a match in New York um, that Mayo played in. Mayo won that nineteen forty seven final, as far as I remember. I mean, not I, I wasn't there. <laughs> I wasn't alive. But um, so then forty eight the the film institute kicks in, and in agreement with the GAA, um, we begin to record the the finals. Um, football and hurling and they were distributed as short 10 minute films um, to uh, clubs GA clubs and town halls and so on um, and those those are, are available we have released those on DVD okay. over the past number of years and in fact we, we've just released um, the uh, later um, series so d- the GAA gold series so we began in the 40s we're, we're moving up now to the 50s 60s so that's available for sale in your nearest okay uh, go to DVD good DVD store No. Um,
0: right, so then you uh you are curator of Irish programming here yep, um, but prior to that you you started out archiving yeah how yes. did you where how did it all kind of start for you after school? Yeah,
1: well, I mean, after school, I went to Trinity and studied um English and sociology, and nothing related to, to film archiving, and the concept you know hadn't really been. Uh, developed here in Ireland um, and I began here um, I worked in various capacities following college but I, I began here on uh, a, an employment scheme as an ANCO scheme um, working with a, a colleague at the time with the distributing library of the, the National Film Institute so as I said there was this library had developed from the 1940s of films that were distributed to schools um, the, the library would have not been exclusively Irish, it would have had films from all over the place and um, used in various parts of the curriculum so there would have been films about history and geography and cheesemaking in Denmark and what have you so when I started um, our role, myself and a woman called Claire Riegel, um our role was be- to begin to physically isolate the Irish interest material from that international collection and to Designate this as the, the, the beginnings of, of an Irish film archive, so we were beginning this in the late 1980s um, at a time before uh, the film archive had been established, so it was a job of kind of going in there and doing some kind of quality control of you know what prints were there, but essentially it was looking at the content of the films and deciding that this film on cheese making can be offered back to the Danish film embassy and um, whereas this film on turf gathering in Connemara in the 1940s is an essential part of, of the National Film Collection.
0: And did that just involve watching thousands upon thousands of films?
1: It was watching films. Now, it, they, they weren't, we weren't watching blind. There was, of course, catalogues because okay. this material had been distributed. Um, we hadn't yet begun um, a, a, a policy of uh, uh, we hadn't put out a call for for more films to supplement this collection yet so pretty much anything that was there we knew what it was there was there were catalogue records existing for it Mm -hmm. and and i should say that this work was following a campaign towards the establishment of an irish film archive that had been spearheaded by the National Film Institute um, and a report had been written by Paddy Woodworth, a a well-known journalist now. So Paddy Woodworth had worked with a woman called Ruth Riddick, who was employed by the Institute, um, to to really look at um, a feasibility study for an archive, what was required, what would the best case scenario be in terms of uh, buildings and provision for National Film Archive. Also in terms of looking at where is Irish film, um, is it does it all exist within Ireland, or will we have to look further afield to uh, really to, to, to build a, a representative Irish film collection? Um, so that campaign had been launched, I believe, at a really important film festival called the Green on the Screen, which was um, presented at the Metropole Cinema, which is now the Screen which is now no longer which is closing yeah so sad it is so sad yeah yeah. so sad but this festival The Green on the Screen was um, incredibly thoroughly curated um, festival where uh, feature films that had been made in and about Ireland since the, the 18, well, possibly not 1890s, but you know, from the 1920s onwards. So these films were brought together. They were identified within foreign archives, um, within you know the National Film Archive in London, London, and further field in the States and in France and so on. So this terrific festival was pulled together, um, and it it made the case for National Film Archives. It was like the call was: here are all these astonishing films made about us, some by us, but probably more by outsiders about us. Um, you know films like Ryan's Daughter and Plan the Stars and The Puritan, and all sorts of films. But the, you know the, the the campaigning cry was this material exists and um, it's being minded thanks to the kindness of other archives. We really need to um, consolidate this collection so that it will be available for Irish audiences, for Irish students, um, and of course this also was at a time where. Film studies was only beginning to emerge as a recognized discipline within the universities, so demands for access to a film history were beginning to become more audible you know through the universities. People knew that films had been made you know in the nineteen tens, 2030s but they had no way of seeing them, so you know it became our we kind of took on the challenge of pulling together a collection so that the study of this history could be could be progressed um,
0: and where do you start with that then do you know in terms of like, even yeah where do you start in terms of shopping like yeah, uh, you know, yeah, um,
1: well I guess the collection grew I mean I suppose you can distinguish between. The national acquisition and international. So nationally, um, at various points, we put out calls through film searches um, nationally to say to people, uh, you may have films in your attics or under the bed that you have made yourselves, perhaps. Um, we understand this material is fragile. It needs particular provision to ensure its survival. So you know, we, we would put out those calls and we would, there would be interesting responses um, from people with home movies um, or you know kind of more sophisticated edited films and so on, and in they would come but internationally um I suppose the, the, the our capacity to bring in films that would be of interest to researchers and so on um might have been limited by budget, so we mightn't you know at the start have had a budget to purchase a print of the quiet Man, but we might have had. The budget to buy a VHS copy or something. So we had we had this very well used collection of uh, reference collection um, that was you know grew increasingly comprehensive in terms of representations of Ireland on film. So you know researchers for a long time would come in and they might want to see whatever it might be, maybe a television documentary about Ireland from made in Germany in the nineteen fifties and we might have it. If we didn't, um, and if it was a legitimate kind of query, we might make efforts to find it, you know, because we figured, oh, this is something we haven't heard of. Um, if we know of a route to acquire a copy of this, we would, we would pursue that. And the, the collection grew thanks to goodwill primarily. You know, we didn't buy prints. You know, we didn't go out with a big budget and say, I'd like to buy this, this and this. People would donate material to us, and other archives were always very um, helpful in giving us materials. You know, they, they, they couldn't incur costs themselves, but if they, you know, copies had to be run, they would give it to us at cost and so on. So, um, the collection grew and grew till, like today, we would probably there probably wouldn't be huge gaps in the collection. You know, if somebody needs to see something it would be unusual that there wasn't some copy here that somebody could look at.
0: And would somebody, say, come to you and say, I'm researching this or I'm writing a paper on this, have you got a film about that topic? And then you go and, yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I suppose the different kinds of research requests would be you might have film students who know what they want to see. They're doing a thesis on the work of Pat Murphy and they come in to us and they can look at Anne Devlin and Maeve and so on. Some The other kind of, um, I suppose, content-driven researcher is most likely to be a documentary maker. You know, somebody is making a documentary about a subject and they might come to us and say, do you have any footage of Frank Aiken in 1952 attending this conference or whatever? And we can search our database and and see if we we have that. And the the kinds of access can vary from somebody coming in and looking at something on a monitor to... um, somebody incorporating something into a feature film you know and 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 access charges would would, would vary, vary accordingly. yeah
0: um, and what's the earliest film do you know in your archive
1: yeah the the earliest we have is um well it's a copy of um films made in 1897 here and um, by the lumiere brothers so the lumiere were a french company and um, who were pioneers of of early cinema and they're um their business was that they would go around Europe um, and they would show films, so they would take their equipment with them, they would show films in places of public gathering, but they would also film. So they, on a visit to Ireland in 1897, where they were showing off their new fancy moving image, um, they, uh, went, they, they arrived into Ireland, into Belfast, in I forget what month, but they arrived into Belfast, and they film in Belfast beautiful street photography of um, people going about their business and then they take the train down to Dublin and they film on board the train so we have this whole kind of east coast um, document of, of um, Ireland from uh, uh, from the perspective of a, a passing train and then they come to Dublin, there's a number of sequences made within Dublin and then on to Dunleary and Black Rock and all of that is documented in these short little 50 second films uh, but there's I think fifteen or sixteen of those. So that it's they, d- 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 this Lumiere brothers material, w- were not unique in that there would be many European countries whose earliest moving images would have been made by the the Lumiere brothers. And in Ireland, the, the their operator was a guy called Alexander promio and he was the one who made these films. It's hugely intrepidism,
0: them, though. You know, in the late eighteen hundreds, to come to Ireland, and you know, it's like
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean they would have I suppose they'd have travelled to the UK and okay. you know um, okay. uh, so th- to come to you know a British outpost at that point yeah. um, would have been I suppose commercially they would have s- they would I wonder how risky it would have been that's an interesting question yeah that um, was it commercially they appear to have you know be, been keen and certainly their catalogue is vast Um from not not just Europe but all over the world but you know the, the the notion that they're showing films and they're absolutely kind of captivating people and those stories that we hear about people sitting in cinemas and you know being terrified of trains uh, um, coming at them off the screens are true I believe you know and they would have that's what people in Ireland would have seen but also um they would have been intrigued to see, you know, people of other lands, you know, whether they were Europeans or that they were further flung and people with dark skin in in, um, darkest Africa and other places would have been uh, of interest, I think, to to audiences.
0: And how many then, I mean, like, kind of prior to a certain date when say filmmaking wasn't a profession so much, if you like, how would, how much of the archive would just be home movies, people kind of
1: yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, the fact is, I guess, with the Irish Film Archive collection, I think that we would celebrate amateur film and we would kind of uh, elevate its place within our collection, possibly more than in other countries and with other kind of national uh, filmographies. And this is because traditions of professional production here you know, were traditionally quite sparse until film studios are established in the 50s and until indigenous production really kicks in in the, the 70s um, with the, the, the first wave and Bob Quinn and Joe Comerford and, and Pat Murphy and so on. So before that, um, there, there were traditions um, of particular kinds of traditions of amateur filmmaking um, around the country, and there's a kind of little pockets of production depending on the wealth of, of the neighbourhood, depending on who, who was owning cameras, and so on. Um, and there is a particular phenomenon in Ireland that community films, as we sometimes call them, were often made by parish priests. So, priests, there, there is this very distinct strand of material within the archive that, is, that are films made by priests and the fact is they were the people who could afford cameras um, and who had a sense of kind of community obligation, so they often were, would go out and film their communities doing religious activities like um, uh, Corpus Christi procession and so on, but also farming and fundraising, whatever it might be um, that was worthy of photogenic um, of a camera. It often was a parish priest who did it. So there are these films made by priests. There are... Films made by regular um, members of the community, um, some home movies, you know, which are very domestic, um, sometimes made by men, occasionally by women, um, but quite often it's traditionally the father who would own the camera and would document the lives of their families, um, and we see these as terribly valuable. Um, often as much for what's in the background as what's in the foreground um but the collections are are, are worthy of study themselves and you know we we have worked with academics uh, in the not too distant past that the, we worked with the university university college cork in looking at amateur collections and looking at patterns of production and um, and it was as interesting to look at um similarities in home movie collections you know um Who's being filmed? What are they doing? And is there a tendency always to film religious communions and confirmations and so on? As you can imagine, um, partly because those things happen at a particular time of year where people can shoot outdoors, because in interior shooting is difficult. So there's all these things that um, are fascinating and and become particularly fascinating when you have a, a representative body of work where you can kind of compare and contrast and look at patterns and um see what's being made where and, and why and so on. Um and is there a
0: you know to be kind of considered uh, w- valuable in terms of a place in the archive? Are there certain criteria that it needs to fulfil or um are there are there many films you've seen that wouldn't make a place in the archive?
1: Um, we now, I, I'm not working directly in the archive any d- now. I'm I work with programming from the archive, so the the um, selection criteria, you know, can be tweaked occasionally. But the fact is, w- with moving with film, whether it's small gauge or sixteen mil or thirty five, and um, because, as I was saying, levels of production in Ireland were never overwhelming, we haven't really needed to impose any very kind of rigorous exclusive um, selection criteria if something is a moving image on film we would consider it worthy of preservation um, our definitions of Irishness can be pretty porous as well you know it doesn 't have to be a film made in Ireland by an Irish person it can be a film made in Ireland by a foreigner or a film made by an Irish person abroad or an Irish subject matter may be filmed abroad you know there 's all sorts of ways of looking at it but you know, we would consider all of that material worthy of preservation. Where it becomes a little more um, challenging is looking at non-film formats. So do we take in people's home video collections, which tend to be enormous? You know, with film, because it was expensive, people always were kind of, they self-edited, you know, the collections were well-selected, and they were... It is manageable it, it, it is realistic to think that we could as a national collection preserve most of what is on celluloid on film, but with with non film formats it becomes more difficult, and that's where you need to begin to have parameters within which you can work you know it, and th- you know I think we're still working on those um and and looking to other archives for cues as to what is sensible and what 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 is Sensible in terms of the future, like what if somebody films like ten hours of their kids playing around in the playground today? Is any of that going to be interesting in ten years' time? Is an hour of it or whatever? So that is a good question, and it's it's one that um, you know we 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 grapple with. uh, And has that become harder now that
0: film making or is just it's so prevalent and accessible and.
1: Well, um, did, I suppose that the, the challenge grapple, selection criteria business, that, that I'm really just kind of teasing that out in terms of amateur production, so non-professional, but with professional production, um, we, we have, I think, n- we haven't closed all the gaps, but what is very encouraging is that now, as opposed to 20 years ago, there are um, contractual agreements with filmmakers and programme makers who are in receipt of film board funding, or BAI funding, or Arts Council funding, that when, when they receive that funding, they are contractually obliged to deposit preservation copies with us here in the archive. So anything that is produced with state funding, you know, through BAI, Film Board, or the Arts Council, um, will be preserved. And this is really reassuring, because it means that very little is falling through the gaps. Now, some does inevitably, and of course, as as means of production have become democratized, and it's you know you can go out with a camera and film something without state funding. That material we would we would continue to be dependent on people's um, good sense and goodwill to understand that if I don't take measures today to preserve this film I've made, it may disappear. You know, and and people, as as we all know, with the kind of photos we took two years ago if you lose your phone with the photos on where the hell is it you know so we have to be just mindful of that stuff and uh, filmmakers you know we're standing by and my colleagues are so impressive in their uh, knowledge of digital provision and di- digital archiving and future-proofing and um, materials that come in and um that you know, th- I would be confident that anything that would come in here and um, will you know continue to exist indefinitely. Okay. And um, so then you, as a curator, um, hmm. what is that? Um, um, well, I suppose that to be honest, um, the title of curator it's not one I'm using now. Um, it, it was one I used before the term came kind of fashionable. Um, so the the term curator can mean kind of a range of things, but. W- when I was curator of the archive, it was using the term as kind of in, in kind of connection with minding materials and the way you'd have curators in the National Library. Um and the term also then incorporates like the the notion of curating, which is kind of selecting programs. So I'm programming now so there's kind of curating and okay, programming. Yes. Um, so but you know the the term although I'm not currently using it, I mean I would kind of curate materials in the now more popular use of the term in, in terms of kind of putting programs together. So um, for the past number of years, I've been involved with programming materials from the collection, from the archive collection, but also looking after uh, exhibition of new Irish work here in the IFI or nationally, and working with a colleague, Sarah uh, Peelanod Thrasy, who looks after IFI International. So we would be facilitating um, programming of Irish film internationally. Uh, through cultural programs in a range of venues um, and that's a very busy part of what we do. Um, so the programming of materials in the archive it's um, it's, a, it's a really rewarding, exciting kind of area of work um, where the fact is there's this vast body of work in the archive and some of it be interesting to think about what proportion of it would be already known about Um, uh, and there's vast tranches of it then that that aren't known about Um, and when I say that because the collection would be as representative of non-fiction production you know there'd be there'd be feature films in there there'd be non-fiction there'd be documentary animation amateur Um, education films all sorts of things that might not have been written about in journals or in academic tomes so um, there's material that is preserved and well looked after but to a certain extent it's invisible until you find a reason for pulling it out and um, a lot of my work would be working with kind of exhibition partners who would come to us and they might have a particular audience um and they might be interested in introducing that audience to the archive or to a particular strand of material so the, the the challenge of kind of matching film materials to audiences is one that you know can be very rewarding so you you
0: so is there again is there a starting point for um do you choose a film and then try and complement? If if you're putting together a programme, Mm. um, where is your starting point for Mm. that? And then how does it go from there? Yeah,
1: well, I suppose that at any given time, there there could be all sorts of um, catalysts for a programme. Um, I mean, one series that I'm particularly... um, interested in is a strand called Local Films for Local People Mm -hmm. that we've been conducting for the past, we're going to a third year with it, and what we decided with this program was that rather than being always reactive to, you know, uh, unsolicited queries coming in from heritage groups all around the country, I mean, we would still look after those people, but... um, that we would at the beginning of each year or coming up to the beginning of each year we would plan okay we'll we'll look at five counties this year and we will curate programs that are county specific and and offer those to arts venues or whoever they might be and really begin to try and engage gradually you know a a national audience and with work that is a that has particular resonance in a particular place and with those programs um, sometimes it's as as straightforward as looking up the database for films we have about Leitrim, and the the, the database will return you know twenty titles. And Leitrim is kind of a, a key example because, as you can imagine, there's not a huge amount made in Leitrim. It's it's not that close to Dublin. Um, unlike Wicklow, for example, which there's a huge amount in Wicklow because Ardmore is there, and you know amateurs and professionals are there. It's a relatively wealthy county. People where affording Cameras there and so on. Anyway, um, the so it may be that it's, it's a straightforward kind of geographic response to a search, or it may be like um, I took a programme to uh, the Dunamaze Arts Centre in Leash last year, and what prompted that programme was the existence of this wonderful film called The Promise of Barty O'Brien. So it's a fiction film made... Um, Under the Marshall Aid program after the Second World War, about um, it's a film, a a fiction film about uh, the building of a power station in Port Arlington, um, which was the 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 scheme and uh, the the education of engineers around the scheme was funded by the Marshall Aid program, which was a post Second World War American funding um strand. So anyway, that's a kind of convoluted um backstory to this film that the film exists and um, it's in the archive it's kind of an odd one um, and because of that financial background um, but once one sees the film you, you really feel like this really needs to get back to Port Arlington because um, you know there's this such local interest. so we brought the film back so it was the cornerstone of this programme brought to Leash and uh, the audience were terrific. You know, many of them had worked in the power station, which had come down in the nineties, and people were recognising locations and saying, "Oh, my aunt lived in that house," or "That's, you know, that extra there is my mother." And that kind of, um, well, th- there's, th- there's 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 a thrill of that, but also what you often find is you're you're participating in a process of public cataloguing because people are feeding back to you. Dates and locations, and confirming things, and what might be fictionalized within a film and not identified. So, th- there might be a townland in a film that has some fictionalized name, but somebody say, Well, no, actually, that's Boris or whatever. And suddenly, you know, you have your catalogue record updated um, and fine tuned. And so, then when you have a subsequent user saying, Are there any films made in Boris? you know that actually, yes, we have this, this film here. So, it's, it's a very useful um, exercise for us. Um, and next year we, we, we'll have, we're in Waterford and uh, Leitrim and three other counties next year. And, you know, we're open to, to others as well. That, that local films um, is, is, is great, you know, it's typically it's, um, engaging. Um, we, we have a 2016 centenary programme. And that, because most of the 1916 activities took place in Dublin, and... Um, what what happens in Dublin because of nat- becomes of national interest. So you know that 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 program, in in few cases will that be tailored for any kind of particular geographic area. But um, it will be of kind of national historical resonance. The 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 films about nineteen sixteen.
0: And are there particular aspects or a particular viewpoint that you kind of want to hone in on in terms of. 1916 and it's commemoration or, remembrance or
1: yeah yeah um, well the the program we have um, the way it has shaped up is that we will have a number of foreign feature films about 1916 so the fact is I mean speaking broadly here but the Irish history on film for many years it it was of interest, it was dramatically interesting um, for foreign filmmakers. So we're showing Ryan's Daughter, that's made by David Lean. We're showing Clown and the Stars, which is John Ford. and um, We're showing Young Cassidy, which is Jack Card of John Ford. So these are kind of big, well-budgeted feature films that had international distribution. Um, but there were very few Irish, indigenous Irish films that that look at 1916. Um, so what we're why actually... Is, sorry, but yeah. why do you think that is? Um, I guess, I mean, partly because the Irish film industry doesn't kick in until, um, y- you know, the 1970s, 1980s. Now, we will include Michael Collins, of course, um, and The Wind that Shakes the Barley, which would have um, British film, Ken Loach's film. Um, I, historical events from a later period, like 1921, uh, 20, were more often dealt with in Irish film, like the treaty, um Guest of the Nation, the Dawning, the Dawn. Um but this specific 1916 just happens to have been drawn the attention. I suppose for I suppose for outsiders the, 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 the battle the, 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 the battle lines were very stark, were very black and white and so you know this little country with the big oppressive neighbour you know that that had immediate kind of simplified um, narrative possibilities I suppose for indigenous filmmakers it wasn't ever that simple you know that it wasn't ever that black and white and the history continues beyond 1916 and you know for an indigenous very often those who are closest to it and um, aren't really in a position to encapsulate um, or interpret it, it may be as simple as that Um, So what we've needed to do with the programme is to kind of counterbalance the foreign perspectives with Indigenous documentaries, and this is what's happened. So um, Although, you know, Michael Collins is in there, as I say, um, and a film called This Other Eden, which is actually directed by a British woman, but there's Irish money in that from the 1950s. But what we found was that whereas there was this clustering of foreign interest on Irish history um, kind of pre-establishment of an Irish film industry with, with Irish filmmakers we thought probably what was more interesting was the kind of essay film work that Pat Collins is making and um, Peter Lennon with his Rocky Road to Dublin um, Alan Gilson with his Road to God Nowhere so what we've done is programmed these documentary features that are kind of state of the nation explorations so at kind of key points in the history so in 1968 we have Rocky Road to Dublin, 88 Road to God Knows Where, Pat Collins is into the 2000s, there's a film called Guns and Schiffen that is about women in Irish history so probably as rewarding would be the kind of Irish documentary considerations of Irish history Um, to kind of counterpoint the, the foreign representations I think it'll be each of these films and these programs um, will be introduced by academics and filmmakers and so on so I think there'll be interesting conversations will emerge around this um, in 1992 for the 75th anniversary we had a program called Reviewing the Revolution and it included in feature films television work from 1966 um, and it was um, a ended by um, panel discussions and and uh, kind of academic consideration of the representations, and we will do that again.
0: And those panel discussions, like, are very regular here. Is that part of kind of what you see the value or the aims in terms of film that it, it is a springboard to a broader discussion in terms of just the, the community as a whole? Is yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely, and. Um, <coughs> I suppose our experience is there's all sorts of outcomes um, from screening. Um, certainly with documentary, um, the kinds of discussions that would emerge from documentary would tend to be directly related to content uh, within the documentary. You know, So as often as not, if you're showing a documentary about um, the shell oil in, in Donegal, the conversations are going to be about the subject matter rather than about the process of production. Um, and we would you know, we're, we're very pleased to have created that space for those discussions here. So, you know, people come to the IFI and they know that um, it'll, be, it'll be apparent from the programme, but that, you know, that a particular screen might have a conversation with the filmmaker or with somebody who's the subject of a film. And w- with, with fiction film, um, I suppose more often the conversation around fiction film would be about the process of production, Okay. Um, rather than the subject matter, if that makes sense. But but again, we do see you know that the, the, you look at our program and at any place there's there's always space in the program for discussion, introduction, panel discussions, uh, film clubs, all sorts of things. And you know it, it it's it is fascinating to see how film literate people have become. Partially due, I think, to our efforts. But of course, you know, things have changed so much. You know, people, you know, have great access to information about film and to films themselves, you know, online. But I think what can often be really valuable here is not only are people um, sitting in a room with experts, but also that they're feeding back. And, you know, the discussions that, that happen here, um, the, the, the audience interaction and the audience questions are often... More thought provoking than, you know, th- than what your your host might be coming um, up with. And just
0: jumping back then to, to 1916, does footage exist of the events of
1: the day itself? Is there? It's more aftermath. Yeah, okay. I mean, to be honest, we we've been kind of researching this period and um, looking for newsreels that we will present during uh, the year, and we have very interesting plans to present the newsreels as they were originally seen. So I guess if people are familiar with them, they're familiar with bits of them that they've seen in other documentaries, but what we would hope to do is to show the newsreels in their original format with their original intertitles and so on. So people get a sense of how, how the story, which was you know a, a story happening in Dublin, was being presented to British audiences or German audiences, um, or being fed back to Irish audiences through cinemas here, but yeah, I, I must admit, I was um, kind of when we began the research, I kind of stupidly was frustrated that there wasn't footage of the fighting. But of course, you know, the, the, nobody was ringing up the the news offices in yeah. London saying that we're, we're going to yeah, have a rebellion yeah. tomorrow. Yeah, we'll yeah get of your course. Party. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because you know, the, the British authorities wouldn't have known, and and the Irish felt it was all it was in the nature of a, a rebellion. I think that. Because, I mean, that's always one thing that um,
0: always strikes me. Th- the way there is so much footage taken of the wars. Mm. Um, but I suppose they were over a longer period of time. And, yeah. Um, uh, have you... Have there been, like... Do you know of any kind of collections that disappeared in a fire somewhere? Or
1: do you know that you've... Um There are a couple of collections that we know of um, that may be in private hands still okay. um, and you know we would be keen to to see that that material comes into you know as properly minded <coughs> because you know anything from that period. If it's original footage, it's nitrate, um, which you know anything made for cinema up to 1952 is likely to be on nitrocellulose-based stock, which is you know it's a time bomb. You know it's only a matter of time before it disintegrates or spontaneously combusts. You know the material is highly um, unstable. Okay. So um, if there's footage from that material, you know existing outside an archive, it it is of some concern, but. Um, so in terms of
0: room, like the kind of the physics of it, room temperature and all of that sort of thing, they're all preserved in a specific environment.
1: Yeah, well, with nitrate, actually, we don't hold nitrate here. We get it off to the UK to um, our equivalents in the National Film Archive in London, and it's transferred to modern safety stock, so it's preserved as film, um, but not on nitrate. IFI
0: Spotlight, mm. um, which is kind of an overview of. The industry in that given year, and um, what conclusions did you draw from? That was held in April this year. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, what spotlight is um, is a, a concentration of focus on Irish film and television in any given year, and it's it fulfills a number of functions. You know, on the one hand. What it is, is a point in the year where we look back at the previous 12 months of production and quite um, critically would look at um, what's been produced, um, by whom, um, who's commissioning, are there production patterns apparent, um, are, there, are there legislative or financial moments in the year that are going to impact upon production. Um, and really our, our agenda was... To, to fill a gap, you know that that there has been a, a great acceleration of production in film and television, but what probably hasn't coincided, what there isn't currently, is you know a published um, critical review of work, um, and really the, the concern was that this material wouldn't go unconsidered are unexplored that that at a point each year there would be a gathering of people who are involved with the industry, either as producers of it or commissioners of it or participants in it as actors or whatever, um, or academics, you know, who, who would be that their life's work is to kind of look at this material and process it. Um, so it was just to kind of position this moment annually to consider work and the plan would be that lessons would be learnt. you know that that you would look at something and if there were weaknesses or if there were absences that they would be articulated and could begin to be addressed and so if for example you know it is recognized that women are more likely to be involved in documentary production and um, that's worth noting um, but if the corollary is that they're less likely to be involved in feature film production as directors you know, that's, this is a point at which that, those points might be noticed and remarked upon also it would have implication for funding you know, the, um, people can look at work, can look at box office can look at production budgets and so on um, and, and see where there is reductions or fall offs and, and these kinds of things so it's the the audience for spotlight is broad so you know we're aware that there's terrific work being done at the Galway Film Festival and you know that that, that the film board publish um their their output annually in their annual review but it is um to create um to to bring together in a room these people like i say the 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 makers and the consumers so audiences as uh, sit alongside the makers and the audiences might be general audience, um, or they might be particular kind of academic audience, um, and you know, so that there is dialogue, so that so that uh, so that output doesn't go unremarked upon. Okay.
0: Um, so just you again, um, <laughs> jumping way back to the beginning when you finished in Trinity what was your way you you said you did a number of things yeah Was your trajectory into eventually because you eventually ended up in London and the British film yeah
1: yeah so I mean I guess as I said I started here with this collection here before whatever I was doing between college and here you know was not connected to film at all but I suppose yet crucially to um, my value to the collection or to the Institute was the opportunity that was provided by the British Film Institute to go and apprentice there, essentially. So um, we're members, w- we would have been Observer members at that stage, I think, of FIAF, the International Federation of Film Archives. And um, FIAF, th- it's, it's a tight-knit community of national archives and there's a terrific um, uh, series of problems where established archives will look out for uh, embryonic archives. Um, so the British Film Institute, we approached them and said, "Look, we're beginning an archive, and there's keen people here, but they don't have the particular skills that would be required um, for for an archivist." Th- this would be this would predate um, the introduction of of uh, film archive. Courses uh, in universities, so they devised a program um, for me and my colleague Claire, Claire. And we went and trained in the BFI for a year, and you know worked in cataloguing, worked in preservation, um, spent many months out in Berkhamsted, which is the conservation centre, um, and really became familiar with best practice in film archiving because the National Film Archive in London, you know, is is would be up there in the top ten. Um, Internationally, between it and the, um, the George Eastman House in Rochester and UCLA, it's, you know, the, they, they would really conduct um, film archiving in a really progressive way. Um, and they have a wonderful uh, history of film production. Um, and what was valuable to us as well was the fact that within their collection there would be quite a, a, an amount of Irish interest material. So that was good to have to kind of consolidate that route to, to collections there.
0: And in terms of what you do, and maybe the skills it requires, and your strengths in that area, why why do you? What makes you good at what you do? Um,
1: Um, I think a good deal of it, to be honest, is the fact that I've been here for seven thousand years. You know, um, and it's I'm I'm conscious that. that within the world of film archiving and text and film programming, and um, there are many people that you encounter who've been in their jobs for decades, and it's it's I, I suppose the same is true of other archives, not just film archives and libraries, but there is, um, uh, you know, y- your knowledge, um, much of which is databaseable, but quite a bit of it that isn't, you know, would just gradually accumulate, and it's a good thing, you know, to to stay put. Um, so. Uh, I think that would be kind of a large part of my strength and um, also you know that i would have a huge interest in the collections you know it's such um it's such a wonderful job you know to be working with this material that um is a relatively new art form Um it's so it's so varied unlike say the national gallery the collection here like I was saying it's it's people's home movies um, you know it ranges from people's home movies to you know the latest wonderful film that Lenny Abramson has produced There's such you know vast range of material you're looking at feature films which show off the best of cinematic art you're looking at films that might be really poorly made but they're showing you a, a, a practice in a small part of Ireland that has ceased to exist and so you're gaining these insights into really into the kind of Nuts and bolts and of of Irish society and Irish culture. It's you know to be witness to that is such is such a privilege and and then to be able to to work to to share that privilege I suppose is um is is what the job is about.
0: Um, and and are there mentors <coughs> like along the way people who kind of were pivotal in.
1: Yeah. Um, the, uh, Liam O'Leary um, would have been one of the first um, fine film minds I encountered. So Liam um, was a film archivist. He has a terrific collection of paper and documents. Um, he would have been one of the first people to write about Irish cinema, um, to write in a concerned way about Irish film not in a wholly kind of laudatory way about Irish cinema is fantastic but to begin writing in the 1940s about what Ireland needed um, uh, what what frameworks needed to be in place to allow a film industry to begin to flourish um, and he he went off to London and became acquisitions officer in BFI but, but continued to be interested in Ireland came back in the 1970s and things and um, curated an exhibition on Irish cinema. So he really was kind of carrying a torch for Irish cinema positioned within an international context. His love of cinema wasn't just about um, showing films about the ocean or farming or whatever. You know, He, he, he considered Irish film in international terms um, and his love of silent cinema and world cinema was... Uh, allowed him to write uh, a number of interesting books about cinema. And he would have been... I mean, certainly when I attended my first FIAF conference um, back in the late 80s, uh, doors were open to me, as they probably were in the BFI, because of Liam. You know, he, he had gone before. People knew of this wonderful, passionate Irish film historian, archivist. Um, and he was so kind to me when we started because, you know, you arrived in... Um, as a young person working with archival films, another older gentleman might have been very kind of scathing of my lack of knowledge, you know, before going off to train in the BFI, but he was always like incredibly generous um, and pleased to see somebody, you know, taking up um, the, 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 the challenge and, and you know, work to establish the film archive. So Liam was the person who laid the foundation stone for the archive here. Um, on the that was in '92, and it was, I think it was the year of his 90th birthday. Um, so anyway, so Liam would have been one of the first kind of shining lights of my, uh, you know, person who inspired me. And then Kevin Rocket was extraordinary. Kevin, who's film historian, um, who would have done a lot of work with the collections here before I began, and would have got programmed from the collections, would have been involved in that Green and the Screen um, Festival. But Kevin was in the process of compiling the Irish filmography, which was published in 1995 when I began. So this massive tome um, was in the pipeline. So Kevin's knowledge of Irish film and you know a very detailed uh, knowledge based on many years of research uh, with periodicals and newspapers and viewing of materials um that was key. Kevin too was always really generous you know you'd pick up the phone um and say you know we're interested in this film do you know where we might find a copy of it or can you confirm that this film exists or who made this so he Kevin if you've met him you'll know he has this really fine mind and it's you know it's the the, the detailed knowledge that he has that he published in Cinema Ireland in 87 I think and then in his filmography in 95 is you know, I I don't know that the film collection could have d- developed the way it did without reference to to that work.
0: Um, and if you were to advise somebody who
1: would like to follow in what you have done, how would you how would you go about that? I mean, I guess nowadays to follow this route, um, it would be more formalized because you know, that film studies programs have been established, Um, that it is kind of possible to navigate your route to a greater understanding of Irish film through kind of coming in and using the collections here. Um, There there would also be kind of third-level courses in film archiving that come and go, that, you know, depending on demand... um, there's In George Eastman House in Rochester, there's a really good course there. Um, there was a course in East Anglia, but I understand that that's not running now. Um, but I guess those routes would be important, you know, that... that um, to, I mean, to, to, to go an academic route would ensure that, you know, you have a broadly-based knowledge. I mean, I, I, I was always conscious in working in a small archive, um, a small national archive, that you had access and exposure to all of the strands of the collection. So, you know, you didn't need to specialise in the way... If I had, if I had been an equivalent working in the BFI, you know, I would have begun work probably in um, features, acquisitions, or, or, you know, it would have been all compartmentalised, or you might have been... I mean, there's people working in very kind of specific areas in the BFI, like there would have been splicing girls, I remember, and that, you know, these were sort of women whose job was to splice... Um, and the equivalent in Koblenz, where I did some training as well, there was the, the Kleberinen and they were also splicing girls. You know, so that was their career was to be a splicing girl. So, you know, we wouldn't have the luxury of splicing girls here because, you know, th- we just didn't have the staff that there could be that level of specialisation. But that, oh, you know, that I was conscious was really a bonus that you would be, you know, one day you might be acquiring a film and showing a film and um, dealing with the donor and. You know, doing something else. You know that uh, looking for funding, and you know, so it, it's all of those things that, that you know w- came to play. So you know, uh, uh, academic training in, in arts administration would also help in that kind of um uh, work as well. Okay, and um, Sanila O'Flynn, thank you very much. Thank you very much.